0: They've been married for 30 years. He's a pioneer of Catholic lay evangelization, and she has a master's degree in theology. Put on the coffee and get ready to open the scriptures. It's time for Bible with the Barbers. Now, here's Terry and Mary Danielle.
1: Welcome, welcome to Bible with the Barbers on this Friday, the 9th of september it's the feast of saint peter claver saint peter claver please pray for us and we'll begin asking the angels to join us here sanctus sanctus, sanctus dominus deus saba ot, pleni sun celia terra gloria tua hosanna in excelsis benedictus qui veni nomine domini hosanna in excelsis the angel of the lord declared unto mary and she conceived by the holy spirit Let us pray. Pour forth, we beseech you, O Lord, thy grace into our hearts, that we, to whom the incarnation of Christ thy Son was made known by the message of an angel, may by his passion and cross, be brought to the glory of his resurrection through the same Christ our Lord. Amen. All right, so we ask the Holy Spirit to enlighten us here. Terry is babysitting our grandson, and our grandson's having a great time. He spent a lot of time in the water this week (laughs) because of the hot weather. So we want to talk today about... The book of Revelation and the seven seals. I've been hearing a lot of talk about the end times and the seven seals. We're living in the time of the seven seals and the end of time is coming and there's going to be persecution. And there's, and as I, well, how do we prepare ourselves? What do we do? And uh, and, and people are seem to be frightened. Well, I, 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 we have this book here and I just want to recommend this to everybody. Coming soon, unlocking the book of Revelation. Um, I didn't write it, no, but Dr. Michael Barber wrote it And it's uh, published by Emmaus Road Publication, and also Dr. Michael Barber works for Augustine Institute, so you may be able to get it through Augustine Institute, but go to Emmaus Road. Any of you who are looking for a true Catholic interpretation of the book of Revelation, please get this book. So what I want to do today is I want to talk about the book of Revelation, how do we as Catholics read it? And remember, um, the Bible didn't just fall out of heaven to us. Yes, every book that's in the Bible was inspired by God, and we consider God the primary author, the Holy Spirit. He inspired men to write the words that they wrote. So what we have to do, you know, is this about the end of the world, right? Um, People think, oh, the apocalypse, it's about the end of the world. Well, what's going on here? You know, it seemed like Jesus and the apostles were saying that the end of the world was coming soon, and... um, And then scholars today say, oh, you see, Jesus was wrong and Paul was wrong because they were expecting the end of time imminently, imminently. Well, you know, um, what's interesting is that, you know, and Dr. Barber points out here that in, in second Peter three, eight, it says, well, with the Lord, a thousand years is a day, a day is a thousand years. So it's like, um, oh, so it's imminent. It was like, a, a thousand years is like a day, so so it's two thousand years away. I mean it's been two thousand years since the death of Christ, and the world hasn't ended. so it just means well, no, that's not really quite you know adequate to every scriptural passage was written in a historical context, and the first meaning of every scriptural passage is the literal historical meaning, okay, so we have to look at the literal historical context in which it was written. And what do we have here? Well, um, you know, we have the Son of Man climbing on the clouds of heaven with great power and glory, right? Jesus' words, he tells his contemporaries, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light and the stars will fall from heaven and the powers of heaven will be shaken and then will appear the Son of Man in heaven and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and glory. And Jesus says, truly I say to you, This generation will not pass until these things take place. And the Greek word meaning generation refers to a period of 40 years. So, since Jesus died around the year 30, he was saying that by 70 AD, you're going to see these things happening. So, was Jesus wrong? Was the Son of God made man? Was he capable of making this kind of a mistake? Which some scholars like to say, yeah, he was. He was just a man and he was going by the fumble method or the bumble method just like the rest of us because he was truly man, right? Well, um, that, you know, we have a problem here, okay? The stars are still secure, they're still there, the world is still going on. So what's going on? So, how do we understand Jesus in Matthew 24 34? Um, We have to examine the sermon, the whole sermon that he preached, okay? So we turn to the beginning of Matthew 24. And Jesus' teaching concerning the last days began as a response to the apostles who were marveling. Remember, they said they were marveling at the temple in Jerusalem. And they said, you know, oh, wow, look at this, you know. And Jesus says to them, (laughs) he was, okay, Jesus left the temple and was going away. When his disciples came to point out to him the building of the temple, he said an answer, you see all this? Do you see Truly I say to you, there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. Okay, that was Matthew 24, one through two. So Jesus's words about the last days, therefore, must be interpreted in this larger context. But what does the destruction of the temple have to do with the end of the world? Well, again, are you reading the scriptures with a 20th century mindset or are you reading it as the people of that day would have read it. They're Jews. What did they believe about the temple? And we even look here, um, there are layers of meaning. Okay, the scriptures, the church has always teaches that there are four layers of meaning in scriptures. You have the literal historical sense, and then you have what's called the allegorical sense. And the allegorical sense covers three different aspects. Let me quote to you from the Catechism of the Catholic Church. According to an ancient tradition, this is the Christian tradition, one can distinguish between two senses of Scripture, the literal and the spiritual, the spiritual, excuse me, the literal and the spiritual, the senses, okay, so that, and the sen- the spiritual sense can be divided into the allegorical, moral, and anagogical. The profound accordance of the four senses guarantees all its richness to the living reading of Scripture in the church. So this is from the Catechism of the Catholic Church, number 115, and So we have these senses of scripture and the church has always understood this and taught this. First, we have to understand the literal historical sense, but then we have to also understand that the the spiritual senses, which are the allegorical, moral, and anagogical. So we have to examine these four senses. If we want to truly understand the book of Revelation and what it means and what it's saying, we need to understand. So let's start with a literal sense. Okay. Does that mean that everything is to be taken literally in scripture? Well, when Jesus said to cut off your hands um, or pluck out your eye when they make you sin, did he mean that literally? There were some people who took it that way, but that's not what he's saying. He's saying, do such discipline to yourself that you are willing to restrain yourself and pull your senses and your, your body into subjection to God's holy word. Okay, our job in reading the Bible is to discover how the biblical writers intended their words to be understood. Sometimes they intended to relate historical facts. Other times they intended to write poetry. Still other times they intended to recount parables—a story—and that Jesus told parables, a story with deeper meaning. We can't interpret every passage in in the same way. Making that mistake has unfortunate consequences. Take an example from the Song of Solomon. Okay, and he gives the Song of Solomon, where Solomon describes his bride. Right? Behold, you are beautiful, my love. Behold, you are beautiful. But then he goes on to say, Your navel is rounded bowl and never lacks mixed wine. Your belly is a heap of wheat, enriched with lilies. Your two breasts are like two fawns, twins twins of a gazelle. And then he goes on to say that your hair is like a flock of goats and that your teeth are like shorn ewes that have come up from washing, all of which bear twins, and not among none among them is bereaved. Well, um... Is he literally, or is he using poetry to describe something, to relay something? He's using poetry to relay something. And so um, we have to go on to say, okay, so the literal sense is not always same as the literal meaning, okay? At the same time, we must affirm that the biblical authors often intended to relate actual historical events. Remember, the Second Vatican Council teaches us, that what the Gospels contain is what Jesus really did and taught while living among men. Yes, second Vatican Council document, Dei Verbum, what is contained in the Gospels is what Jesus really did and taught while living among men. All right. But um, sometimes we take passages too literally. And other times, you know, we, we misinterpret things. It's like, it's not 20th century history. The Bible doesn't work like our 20th century history books, okay? So the literal sense is the foundation of all other senses of the scriptures. One cannot study the spiritual senses, that is the allegorical, the moral, and the anagogical, unless one begins with the literal. Pope Pius Twelfth taught, the foremost and greatest endeavor should be to discern and define clearly the sense of the biblical words, which is called the literal literal. We want to get the literal sense down so that we can get to the other senses. So it's not a history book in the way that we understand 20th century history. It talks about kings, it talks about battles, but it's not there to give you history in the way that we understand history in the 20th century. All of this is what? We have to look at the Bible as the story of God fathering his family through history. I hear the scriptures. So we're going to talk about this strange Greek word, oikonomia, on the other side of the break. And what does it mean that God is fathering his family through history? And how does that affect the way we read scripture? Don't go away. Please tell your friends and family to join us and share with them that we have a Bible study on Virgin Most Powerful Radio. I'll be right back on the other side of the break.
0: Now, back to Bible with the Barbers. If you have a question or comment, call 888-526-2151. Here's Terry and Mary Danielle.
1: Terry, Terry's not with me today. He's babysitting our grandson, so we're, we're a joyful time with our grandson. So we're talking about the senses of Scripture and how do we read Scripture. We especially want to understand this in all in all for all of Scripture, but especially the book of Revelation, because so many people think that the, the Book of Revelation is such a mysterious book that we don't understand. And it's all about the end of time. Well, um that's what we want we're talking about today. Is it about the end of time in the in other words, the world coming to an end? Well, let's take a look at this. And we've been talking about the senses of scripture, the literal historical sense. So, you know, you have the fathers of the church are Maybe this was St. Thomas Aquinas. He said, God writes the world as men write books. I believe that's a quote from St. Thomas Aquinas. Except that in, instead of using only words, he can use historical realities to signify other realities. So for instance, when his people were slaves in Egypt, he had them, when he was going to deliver them, he had them kill a Passover lamb. A lamb. Why was it called Passover? Because the angel of the Lord passed through Egypt that night and killed the firstborn of every family in Egypt and every family that had the lamb had killed the lamb and then marked the doorpost and the lintel of their home with the blood of the lamb was saved from the, the, the destroying angel and that was the passover of the lord he was passing judgment on the gods of israel the false gods of the israel uh, not the false gods of egypt whom by the way israel had fallen into worshipping cuz he wanted to take his people out of egypt to re, re- reestablish them in a relationship with himself. Okay. Because God made us for himself. You know, if, if we don't know that God made us for himself, that then we don't know where we came from. And, and if we don't know that he made us to be in relationship with himself, we don't know how to live and that he made us to be in relationship with himself, not just here on earth, but for all eternity in heaven. And if we don't know that, then we don't know where we're going. So we need to know that we were made by God. We were made for union with God, not only on this earth, but for eternity with God in heaven. So Okay, so then we get back to scripture here and, and the book of Revelation. So what's going on here? Well, maybe there's something spiritual going on. So we have, you know, the Paschal Lamb refers to Christ. All right? So we have the temple, right? And remember, the context of that end of time dialogue, you know, Jesus says the stars will fall and the moon will be, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not shine and the stars will fall from the sky. Okay, and, and it's in reference to the temple somehow, the temple is coming in here. Well, the temple refers to who? In the Old Testament, there was a temple, but that temple was a sign of the Messiah. Christ himself would be the new temple. Remember, in the book of Revelation, at the end, you have a new heavens and a new earth. And in heaven, there's a temple. And the lamb is in, is the light of the temple. All right? So the temple is Christ himself. And so you have the, the literal historical temple of the Old Testament, but in the moral senses, it's the moral senses mean what? Okay, the way Christ leads us to act justly is the moral sense. The anagogical sense is the way that Christ brings all things to fulfillment in himself. And the allegorical sense refers to the way in which Christ fulfills the Old Testament in himself. So you have... Christ fulfilling the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, there are types. The Ark of the Covenant was a type. The Temple was a type. The Paschal Lamb was a type. All right? And even, there are many, many more. Okay? But, so Christ himself, in himself, fulfills the Old Testament. And he leads us to act justly. That's the moral. And the anagogical is that Christ recapitulates all things in himself. He's all things are fulfilled in him. Okay, so we have the the temple building, right? You have the literal historical temple. It's a structure, the allegorical sense, it refers to fulfillment in Christ. Christ is the true temple. The moral sense, Christ brings fulfillment in himself through the church. The church and its members are the temple of the Holy Spirit. Okay, we're members of Christ, and the Holy Spirit dwells in us. We're his temple. Anagogical sense is how Christ brings fulfillment in himself through bringing the church into heavenly glory. The church in heaven dwells in the heavenly temple, which is God himself. So we have to distinguish the literal senses from the spiritual senses, but we have to be careful not to overlook the interconnection between them. In fact, the literal sense of many New Testament passage is also a spiritual reading of the Old Testament passages. For instance, when Jesus spoke of the temple of his body, the literal meaning encompasses the allegorical sense. There, the literal sense in Christ's explanation of how he is the true temple. Okay, remember he said, destroy this temple in three days I will raise it up. And they thought he was talking about the temple building and he's referring to his crucifixion that they're going to kill him and he will rise from the dead. Okay. Well, how does this relate to the end of times prediction in Matthew 24? Well, okay. So we're ready to look at this. Jesus describes the end of the world when he predicts the destruction of the temple. Okay. When he's describing the end of the world, how do we know this? Well, to the ancient Israel, the temple was a miniature model of the world. All right. When Moses built the tabernacle, That was the mobile temple, remember, in the desert. And Solomon built the temple itself. They did so in sevens, seven days, seven months, seven years. They imitated the way God created the world in seven days. That's why they did it in sevens. In fact, the book of Job describes creation in terms of temple building. Look up Job 38, 4 through 7. The temple is a scale model of the world and the world is one giant temple remember god writes the world like he write like men like like men write books we're supposed to be worshiping god always everywhere and at all times in every place we're supposed to bring god into every moment of our lives in every place where we are because this world belongs to god because god made it it's his temple that he made as a place for people to worship him. And everything reflects him. Everything that he made, everything that is good, reflects him and draws us to worship him. The temple meant the world to Israel, literally, okay? The temple was the symbol of the world. For Jesus and the people of Israel in his day then, the destruction of the temple symbolizes the end of the world, in a very real sense, the world was coming to an end. If Jerusalem collapsed and the temple was destroyed, the world ended for them. This is why Jesus' sermon on the end of the world are always given in the context of a prediction of a destruction of the Jerusalem temple. And Jesus was true to his word. In A.D. 70, about 40 years after he ascended back into heaven, Jerusalem And its temple were destroyed. With this event, the ritual order of the Old Testament came to a definitive end. The temple sacrifice and the Old Testament priesthood were no longer possible. Jesus was right. The end came within one generation. Furthermore, Christians heeded Jesus' warning. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains and let those who are inside the city depart. The early Christians escaped Jerusalem and fled to Pella just before the Roman legions arrived to besiege Jerusalem because Christ had warned them. Moreover, Jesus' warning to flee Jerusalem can also be understood spiritually as an admonishment to abandon the absolute temple sacrifice. Obsolete obsolete temple sacrifices. Why? Because the one sacrifice of Christ on the cross was the fulfillment of all the temple sacrifices. There's only one high priest, that's Jesus Christ. And every ordained priest of the Roman Catholic faith shares in the priesthood of Jesus Christ. So we're not going to be attached to Jerusalem and its temple or the Old Testament. We have to flee. We have to understand that Christ is the fulfillment of the Old Testament. We don't throw the Old Testament out we read it and understand how it showed us Christ was coming and what it would mean, okay? So was he coming soon? Well, according to the beck of Revelation, Jesus is coming soon, and that means his judgment. Well, he sure came soon, didn't he? He came soon, and he judged Jerusalem because Jerusalem and the Jewish leaders had rejected their Messiah, The Jewish leaders and those who went along with them rejected Jesus and therefore would face God's judgment. His his coming had, he had strong words for the scribes. Remember, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, for you build tombs of the prophets and adorn the monuments of them, saying, if we had lived in the days of our fathers, and it goes up, you know, he goes on. That's from, you can look up Matthew 23, 29 through 38. So the year 70 then was truly a kind of second coming wherein Jerusalem was judged and found wanting because it had rejected its Messiah. It marked the end of the world as Jesus' hearers knew it. So if we can appreciate the meaning, the significance of the year 70 AD and the destruction of the Temple of Jerusalem, we're in a much better position to understand the message of the book of Revelation, all right? As we have seen, it's reasonable to believe that the book was written sometime in the 60s during the reign of Nero, before the cataclysmic events of 70 AD. So when John says that Jesus is coming soon, he was prophesying the destruction of Jerusalem. And it's interesting because, you know, you had... um, At the time of uh, the destruction of Jerusalem, Josephus writes about it, and I don't see the quote right here right now, so I'll have to find it again during the break if I can. But it's not about the end of the world in terms of the earth coming to an end. It was about the destruction of Jerusalem. And this is one of the problems with modern scholars is they want to date all of the biblical books very late. They want to make them very late written especially, it's not all the biblical books, all the books of the New Testament. And what's interesting is their internal evidence of the books show that that's not what's going on. There's more going on here. And it's not, they're not written as late as some scholars would like to think. And Dr. Barber, there's so much in this book that I am not gonna be able to cover in this hour. But I need, so many people are talking about this. I need people to read this. Catholics need to read this and share it with your Protestant friends. We can understand the book of Revelation. If we understand that the, the Bible is speaking to us about Jesus Christ as the Savior of the world, the Old Testament is the, the telling us He's coming, all the types of Christ in the Old Testament, and then the fulfillment in Jesus Christ. And the Book of Revelation is not some strange prophecy about the ends, end of the world or the end of times; it was about the end of Jerusalem. Now, is that, and in terms of what can happen in terms of God's judgment of His people throughout the, the ages? If they continue to disobey him, yeah, wars and rumors of wars. And Christ will come again. There will be a second coming. And there will be wars and rumors of wars. But we have to live in the present moment and know that God is with us in the present moment. So I hear the music again, and we're going to take another break. And we're going to get into the seven seals that are unlocked in the Revelation, beginning in Revelation six, and it's uh, well. I think it's in actually in five, Revelation five. But don't go away. There's more to come on the Book of Revelation and the unsealing of the seven seals. We'll be right back on Bible with the Barbers on Virgin Most Powerful Radio. Thank you for tuning in. And share this with your friends.
0: Now back to Bible with the Barbers. If you have a question or comment. Call 888-526-2151. Here's Terry and Mary Danielle.
1: Thank you for joining us on Bible with the Barbers on Virgin Most Powerful Radio on Friday, September the 9th, 2022, the Feast of St. Peter Claver. St. Peter Claver, pray for us. And so we're talking about the book of Revelation. And is this about the end of the world? Or is this about something else going on? And we've talked about that. We've talked about how... The destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD and the destruction of the temple was in a very real way for all of the Jews, the end of the world, because the temple was a microcosm of the world. I want you all to get the book coming soon, Understanding the Book of Revelation by Dr. Michael Barber. It's MAS Road Publishing. And read this, read this book, understand. So many people, you know, we get caught up in things and we read things in scripture and we... We don't understand necessarily how we're supposed to be reading scripture, and so we misread it. And so we, we need to realize that Christ is the center. He's the center of history, by the way. There was I remember when my brothers and sisters were in high school and they had a high school textbook called Jesus Christ, Lord of History. He is the Lord of history. The world was made for Jesus Christ so that he could become man, the, the second person, excuse me, so that the second person of the Blessed Trinity could become man and live among us. And unite us to God and bring us into union with God in the most perfect way. And so, because of original sin, when he came, he had to come to redeem us from sin. And he did. And we can really live a life of union with God. And that's what this, this is all about. So, we've talked about the proper reading of Scripture and the, to understand the literal historical sense of it. And then the, the, um, the spiritual senses, which are the allegorical sense, the moral sense, and the anagogical sense. That is, the allegorical is how it's fulfilled in Christ. The moral is how it applies to our life and how it's supposed to affect the way we act. And the anagogical is how all things are recapitulated in Christ and brought back to union with God. So in Revelations 4, 1 through six seventeen. We have a couple of things going on. John is taken up into heaven. John, the Apostle John. And I, yes, Dr. Barber makes a very good case that the Apostle John is the actual author of the book of Revelation. And I believe that's true. And I, from my studies, I also have understood that. And that's the way the early church saw it. There were some who had different opinions, but their opinions were not based on um, historical fact. They were based sometimes on the fact that, well, it's so different from the gospel. Well, yeah, it's so different from the gospel of John because it's, it's interesting. In the Gospel of John, you know, the Gospel of John is the only gospel that doesn't have a, um, uh, what do you call it, an apocalyptic um, discourse. In Matthew 24, you have the apocalyptic discourse. In Mark 13, you have an apocalyptic discourse. In Luke 21, you have an apocalyptic discourse about the end of the world, the, the prediction of the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple. You don't have that in the Gospel of John. Oh, well, maybe because he was given a revelation, where he already had described the destruction of Jerusalem in the book of revelation. That's what's being described here. So John's caught up to heaven and he gets to see the throne room. And it's interesting because you have here in John four, you have these tremendous parallels between the book of Daniel, the prophet Daniel and the book of revelation, excuse me, the book of Ezekiel. Yes. Daniel four and revelation and then Ezekiel and revelation. Well, in Daniel four, you have what you have this, um, excuse me, Daniel 7, in Daniel 7 and in Revelation 4. This is the two things that are being compared here. All right, you have John portrays Christ as the one who is the fulfillment of Daniel's prophecy, who receives the kingdom and gives it to the saints. Okay, okay, so you have the introductory vision phraseology, you have a throne in heaven, you have this God sitting on the throne, you have God appearance on the throne, you have the fire before the throne, you have the heavenly servants surrounding the throne. You have the image of the sea, you have the books before the throne, you have the books that are open, you have a divine messianic figure approaching God's throne to receive authority to reign forever over a kingdom, the kingdom's scope, all the peoples of the nations and tongues, the seer's emotional distress on account of the vision, the seer's reception of heavenly counsel concerning the vision for one of the from one of the heavenly servants. And then that gets actually into Revelation five already. And then the saints given divine authority over the kingdom. And that's in Revelation five and um, concluding mention of God's eternal reign. So Daniel seven, and then you parallel it with Revelation four and five, and you're going to have to get Michael's book. To go through it all, because he'll explain all those things. And then in Ezekiel, you have another, you know, prophecy where Ezekiel foresees the destruction of Jerusalem. Now, again, in, remember, in the time of the prophets, if the, 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 the Jerusalem was destroyed and the temple was destroyed, <laughs> remember, because the people weren't faithful and they were carried off into exile. So, but it's also, you know, the fulfillment, the full fulfillment of that, all of that is fulfilled in Christ. So in Ezekiel, you have Ezekiel 1, Ezekiel 2, Ezekiel 5, Ezekiel 6, 7, Ezekiel 10, 12, throughout the book of Ezekiel. There, there are many pro, uh, many uh, chapters in Ezekiel that are um, referenced here where it, it talks about this, this this destruction of Jerusalem. And it parallels Revelation 4 and 5 again. Also goes, well, Ezekiel parallels Revelation 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 10, 11, 14, 14, 17, through 18, 19, 20, 21, and 22. So the prophecy there covers a lot of the book of Revelation. So again, you get all the details. You got to look at Dr. Barber's book coming soon, the book of Revelation. And I, I, this is so important because I'm, I'm hearing so many people say, we're living in the time of the unsealing of the seven seals. And I think we need to understand the unsealing of the seven seals in terms of the destruction of Jerusalem, but also to understand that in every age, God is calling us to give up our sins. In the time that we're living in, God is calling us to give up our sins, repent, repent and believe the gospel, turn back to God, save yourself from this generation that is lost and is going to be destroyed. Yeah, God will you, God will only tolerate sin so long. Remember when God's people were taken into exile, okay, they went down to Egypt. They weren't taken into exile first. They were t- they, when they first went down to Egypt, Jacob and his sons, when Joseph was ruling in Egypt, when he was the prince over the, the, the Pharaoh's house and the Lord of all his possession, Okay, he was the governor for the Pharaoh. And the Israelites are told, you will go down to Egypt until the Canaanites have filled up the full cup of wrath. God will only tolerate evil in people for so long. Just as when in the times of Noah, he destroyed the world with a flood, saving Noah and his sons, Noah's wife and his son's wives. And he promised he would never destroy the world with a flood again. And every, every day, you know, when, when Adam and Eve sinned, God promised a Messiah. When Noah and his sons, after the destruction of the world with the flood, God renews the covenant that he will send the Messiah and he will never destroy the earth again with flood. And so God is not just going to let us go on sinning and sinning and sinning without stopping us in our tracks. There will come a point when too much evil is being done and God will say enough is enough. You're done. Repent of the sins. God's patience is geared to our repentance okay? It's geared to our repentance. We need to give up our sin and not live like the pagans around us. We're supposed to be bringing the pagans to Christ. We're not supposed to say, oh, well, you know, Jesus had a nice message and it was kind of fun to live by, you know, and it's kind of a good idea. But, you know, it's okay. Just make up your own mind. Decide what's true for you and what's true for me. And it may be different, but that's okay. No, I am the way, the truth, and the life, Jesus Christ said. There's only one truth. God is truth. There's only one life. God is the life. Without the way, there is no going. Without the truth, there is no knowing. Without the life, there is no living, Bishop Sheen used to quote. So we need to realize that even though, yes, the book of Revelation was fulfilled with the, with the destruction of Jerusalem, will God punish people for sins throughout the ages? Yeah, he will. He'll allow plagues. He'll allow famines. He'll allow um, wars. <laughs> if we don't turn to him, We have to turn to, if we want peace, we need to give up our sins and turn back to God and pray for peace. But if we want peace, work for justice. We won't have peace in this world where we're killing innocent people every single day. You know, I heard the other day that the number one cause of death in today's world, number one cause, if you take all of the causes of death, including natural death, and you combine them all, induced abortion surpasses them all there are more innocent children killed through induced abortion than all of the other causes of death put together in our day we have to stop killing the babies and we have to fight for the innocent and defend them all the innocent babies they all deserve life god made them all and they're all made in his image and they're beautiful and good and they deserve to live This is applying the scripture to us now. How do we prepare for the end? Live in the state of grace. Repent of our sins. Turn back to God and live moment by moment in God's presence and beg God for the grace to persevere through the trials that are coming. People are going to be persecuted. If we do the right thing, we will be persecuted. But we have to pray for the... perseverance and we can't pray that God get even with our enemies by the way I know in the Old Testament there's a lot of passages it says okay God take down the enemies you know it's like God yes spare us from our enemies but convert them God adds days and years to the life of the sinner that he might repent I remember once my sister asking me my oldest sister Carol God bless her beautiful woman when my brother Joseph got sick in 2019 she said why Danny why Joe he's the nicest one he's the nicest he's the most giving person in the family he's the one who's concerned about everyone why him and he 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 died he was hospitalized and and died in August of 2019 and and I said she said why do all these evil people go on living they're old men and women and they're evil and they're spreading evil and they want to kill babies and they want to kill people and they want to reduce the world population to one billion and kill everybody else and why doesn't God take them out because God adds days and years to the life of the sinner that he might repent. Are we repay- praying? Are we praying for their repentance? That's what we're supposed to be praying for their conversion and repentance. So so you have to get Michael's book to get into all the details here because there's way more than I can cover. But I do want to talk a little bit about the seven seals. I promised you I would. So I have one more session, one more section here of the show. <laughs> the music is coming again. Don't go away because we're still going to get to those seven seals. We'll be right back with Bible with the Barbers. Thank you for tuning in to Virgin Most Powerful Radio. Thank you for supporting us with your prayers, your sacrifices, and your monetary donations and sharing this with your friends because that's another way to support us is to make new listeners by telling people.
0: Now back to Bible with the Barbers. If you have a question or comment, call 888-526-2151. Here's Terry and Mary Danielle.
1: Welcome back to Bible with the Barbers on this Friday, September 9th. Please share this with your friends. Thank you all the radio stations that pick us up. Thank you for all of those of you who support us with your prayers, your sacrifices, those who offer up your sufferings for us and those who give us monetary help and those who share this with their friends because this is how you pass this around to your friend, your church group, and then more people listen and more people get to know about us and that's how we grow. Thank you, thank you, thank you. And I want to, just before I get to the seven seals, there's such an important point in the book of Revelation that Dr. Barber points out and other you know, very young upcoming biblical scholars have seen this, liturgy, 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 liturgy. The, the book of Revelation is about the heavenly liturgy and so it's so important what happens in the heavenly liturgy has consequences on this earth okay the lamb is still present worshiping and interceding for the saints the lamb of god catholic people ask why catholics have jesus on the cross still because in heaven the lamb still bears his scars the victim who immolated himself on the cross and yes he's not dying anymore but he lives for all eternity that act of immolated love this is a great mystery The Lamb of God still bears his scars, and he offers them to the Father on behalf of sinners. So we pray for each other that we will all be converted to Christ and turn to him. So what do we have going on here? Well, we have the gospel truth, right? In the gospel of Matthew chapter 24, Mark 13, and Luke 21, compare those to Revelation 6. And what do we have in Revelation 6? Well, you have war, international strife, famine, pestilence, persecution, earthquake, and decreation. Well, in Matthew, Mark, and Luke 24, Mark 13, Luke 21, Matthew 24, Mark 13, Luke, you have wars, international strife, famines, earthquake, persecution, and decreation. So there's a parallel here. In those chapters, Matthew 24, Mark 13, Luke 21, Jesus is describing the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple. And... Revelation 6 is showing us about this. So, and this is not, you know, they're, 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 um, Chilton, I believe, is the is, is the um, biblical scholar who who points this out. So, again, the book of Revelation, yes, it was fulfilled in the destruction of Jerusalem. Well, wrath with the horsepower. And remember I mentioned to you that Josephus had written something and I wanted to find it. I found it. Guess where it was? The prophecy of the four horsemen may have actually found a fulfillment in a vision seen by many right before the destruction of Jerusalem. Josephus records signs that occurred in the city, which seemed to signal the coming of the end. Remember Josephus, the Jewish historian who was in Jerusalem during the siege of Jerusalem, and he writes about it, and it's horrible. It's very difficult to read, and he survived The destruction of Jerusalem and and his writings were preserved. God wanted this history to be preserved. A certain prodigious and incredible phenomena appeared. I suppose the account of it would seem to be a fable were it not related by those that saw it and were not the events that followed it so considerable in nature as to deserve such signals. For before sunsetting, Chariots and troops of soldiers in their armor were seen running about among the clouds. After narrating this, Josephus goes on to tell about a prophet who warned of a voice from the four winds, which corresponds to what John sees at the beginning of the next chapter, Revelation 7. So, the first horseman. The first horseman might actually be a false Messiah who comes to lead people astray, lead them away from Christ. In Jerusalem, if you ever want to read the account of the destruction of Jerusalem, the besieging of Jerusalem and what went on inside the city, it was absolutely horrible. And you can read it. Look up Josephus and read it. Okay? So the second horseman, the second horse brings persecution and civil unrest. Given the parallels to the synoptic gospel accounts, it may also denote international strife. Of course, This was exactly what occurred before the destruction of Jerusalem in the year 70. Josephus recounts how civil unrest abounded at this time in Palestine as Romans, Jews, Syrians, and others broke out into violence against each other. Likewise, Roman historians report the civil unrest in Rome was so great, it was thought that Rome itself would collapse and be conquered. The third horseman, the third seal, the symbol of a balance or scales is used as a symbol for famine since it is then that food needs to be carefully weighed and measured out as the price skyrockets. A quarter, of a, we- a quarter a quart of week for a denarius and three quarters of barley for a denarius represents a kind of superinflation. These prices translate to mean that the whole day's work would only earn enough bread to last one day. It also is interesting that oil and wine are not to be harmed. Wheat is harvested during Pentecost, during the spring harvest, yet oil and wine are not affected, indicating that the later harvest associated with the Feast of Booze has not been hurt. Thus the famine is severe, but does not last the whole year. The judgments of the seven seals, therefore, are escalating, but not climaxed yet. Perhaps it is significant that the sacramental elements are to be left untouched bread, wine, and oil. The fourth seal and the fourth horseman. The color of this horse usually translates pale. From this word, we get the English word chlorophyll, which gives leaves their green color. It is better translated green and should probably be understood in terms of a sickly color, you know, that sick green color you get if you get... um, Gallbladder trouble. If you get gallbladder trouble, you turn green around the gills. You get a green tint to your skin. If you have liver trouble, you get yellow. So the color of your skin can indicate... Um, just just a side note here. <laughs> Sorry, just a footnote. <laughs> indicate health problems. So the rider's name is Death or Hates, and it seems to demonstrate that he is the worst of the four. In fact, it seems that the fourth horseman is a combination of the other riders that came before The meaning of power over a fourth of the earth is unclear. It may be seen as part of the overall destruction narratives on a whole. The trumpets bring about destruction of a third of the land, while the chalices destroy all that's left. The final horseman's judgment of famine and violence may find a first century fulfillment in the situation of Jerusalem before the judgment of the year 70. Josephus describes the state of Jerusalem before it fell. The madness and sedition did also increase together with their famine, and both their miseries were every day inflamed more and more. For there was no corn which anywhere appeared publicly, but the robbers came running into and searched men's private houses. And then if they found any, they tortured them because they had denied that they had any. And if they found none, they tormented them worse because they supposed that they had carefully concealed it. A table was nowhere laid for a distinct meal, but they snatched the bread out of the fire, half-baked, and ate it hastily. This happened at the time of the fall of Jerusalem. Josephus, that's what he's, he's telling you about, the violence and famine that afflicted Jerusalem, just as John had foreseen it. So then you have the fifth seal, the souls under the altar, the image of disembodied souls under the altar crying out for judgment of their murderers calls to the mind the Old Testament stories about the blood of Abel crying out, the blood of the innocent crying out from the soil for vengeance, right? And we have the souls of the saints crying out, not their blood. So the description of the saints under the altar is probably meant to illustrate their deaths as sacrificial. When animals were sacrificed in the temple, the blood for the offering would actually run down to the base of the altar, ending up under the altar. The blood and hence the souls of these martyrs are under the altar, because they offered their lives in sacrifice for God. And their white garments signify their righteous deeds of these saints, and thereby the righteous deeds of these saints, and, and thereby connects them with the twenty-four elders of Revelation 4 4. Then you have the sixth seal and the wrath of the Lamb, right? As we saw in chapter 2, since the sun, moon, and stars were the way the, ancient time told, the ancients told time, the image of their destruction is another way of telling Jerusalem, your time is up. Similarly, the image of the barren fig tree was used by Jesus as a symbol for fruitfulness of Jerusalem, ripe for judgment, in fact, the wording of this passage is taken almost verbatim from Isaiah 34. Jerusalem, ripe for judgment, Matthew 21, 18 through 19 and twenty-four thirty-two. When Edom is told that God's coming judgment, the hosts of the heavens shall rot away and the skies roll up like a scroll. All their hosts shall fall as leaves fall from the vine, like leaves falling from the fig tree, Isaiah 34, 4 and that the host of heaven represents the stars, okay? So we have all this going on, and it's, it's about the destruction of Jerusalem. But again, the destruction of Jerusalem is about God's judgment on his people. God gives us, time and time again, opportunities to repent of our sins. But he'll only tolerate it so long if we refuse to repent of our sins, he will allow us to reject him eternally. And hell is really eternal. And, you know, Padre Pio once told a woman that came to him, or a person, I, maybe it was a woman, said, I don't believe in hell. And he said, you will when you get there. And the reality is we have to beg God. You know, faith is a gift. That we are loved by God, that God really is in charge, that there's good things going on in the world, that God hasn't abandoned us. All of these things, this is a gift from God. So I, I want to caution us all, don't, don't look to the book of Revelation to tell us about the end of time. It talks about the destruction of Jerusalem, but it also talks about the heavenly liturgy. It talks about what we are called to. We are to worship Christ in union with all of heaven. All the saints and all the angels are worshiping God day and night. Why? God is a Trinity of persons. He's not a solitude unto Himself. He's a Trinity of persons. The original family, as Saint John Paul II said, He is Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. So, what? What is a family? You have fatherhood, you have sonship, and you have the essence of the family, which is love. And this is the Trinity. So, the human family is a a reflection of God. God is not a reflection of the human family. The human family is a reflection of God. All of creation reflects God and draws us to worship God. And that's what the book of Revelation is about. And yes, it warns us that if we don't give up our sins, we too will suffer from famines, war, persecution. And even if we do give up our sins, we may be persecuted, but we will go to heaven after the end of the persecution. Whereas if we live in sin, we're going to go to hell for all eternity. We don't want to do that. So let's live in God's grace. Let's rejoice in the Lord always. I say it again, rejoice. God is near. He's with us. God is with us. He has never left us. Emmanuel, God with us. And we know as Catholics that he's with us in the Blessed Sacrament. So go visit Jesus in the Eucharist. Spend time with him. Even if you're not Catholic, go to a Catholic church and spend time before our Lord in the Blessed Sacrament and pray. And thank you so much for supporting Virgin Most Powerful Radio, for listening to us. Thank you for sharing this with your friends. And please tell your friends and family, tune into the podcast. This is a podcast. That you can listen to it any time you want. Again and again. And I really encourage you get Dr. Michael Barber's book, Coming Soon, Unlocking the Book of Revelation. You'll love it. It's so important. Thank you, and join us again next week for Bible with the Barbers.